Like an Australian man keeps his job, a different Australian man edges closer to a major title. Sydney FC grab a vital win, there's drama at the top of the table as Western United fall back. Dow Leagues and PFA have moved to hide social media abuse and more. I'm Harper Pestinger and this is the KickCast. Pleasure to have all of you guys here. A couple minutes late for the first ever live KitCast. We did a take before realizing we weren't actually live, but we're here now. We are live. There's four people tuning in right now. Lovely to have you all here, guys, wherever you are. And on the panel, it's a new look panel today. First up, as we said in take one, he's on pod debut all the way from Bulgaria, Petar Petrov. Welcome, Matt. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. I'm the new foreign signing of the KickCast, and I will ruin it with my Eastern European accent. <laughs> massive, massive marquee signing for the KickCast. Petter, how are you feeling stepping out in front of the three fans who've got tuning in at the moment for the first time? The pressure, <laughs> yeah. pressure of the moment? Yeah, of course. It's my debut, but I hope like it will go well. And just don't make me sing an initiation song, please. <laughs> <laughs> Well, also here in the top right of our screens is a man who featured on episode one of the Kick Cast with Neil Simons as host, and a guy called Harper Pestinger as the other so-called expert panelist. Harper was never seen again giving his opinions on anything. He was never asked to do that kind of thing again. But Jack George has since become a podcasting superstar. Jack, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Harper. I always forget to um like write something down to introduce myself. So hello, everyone. How many people are there now? Uh, there are four people, Jack. Four. Uh, big audience. He's feeling, feeling the pressure. Feeling the are pressure. you feeling pressure? Yeah. Well, and also the third panellist here, in a world of constant change, it's good to have a bit of familiarity around these parts. Rounding off the team today is the man who they call Tactics Tom out there in the hood, Tom Williams. It's good to see you. Good to see you too, Harper. Looking forward to chatting all things Australian football and let's hope that uh, it doesn't get too rowdy in here tonight in this live episode. Yeah, well, for the people tuning in, the numbers are increasing at a rapid rate. So if you are tuning in, do feel free, as it says in the ticker below there, to leave your comments and your questions, any uh, hot takes you want to give us or what, what you think about our opinions because you're just as big as part of the show as we all are. But Tom, I think we'll start with you. Graham Arnold is going to stay on as Socceroos coach until at least the end of this World Cup campaign. I doubt you're too happy about that. Yeah, look, we, we spoke about it in the great studios of Marrickville in the days post, post-mortem after the Japan game. But, yeah, I, I think I've said my opinions via social media on this, and I think – What I can say is that I can completely justify the decision to keep Graham Arnold at the helm, but that doesn't necessarily mean I agree with it. Um, (laughs) Thank you, Dave Morgan. We love the intro as well. (laughs) Um, Look, I'm a big believer in what Graham Arnold says a lot of the time. I've been one of his biggest defendants, I'd say, throughout this World Cup qualifying campaign, but that... Japan game and that Saudi Arabia game really made me believe that he isn't getting the best out of this team. And I think when a manager doesn't get the best out of his team, you're heading into 
problem areas. And that's why I think, personally, it would have been a better idea to sign a foreign manager who's got international experience to take into these two important games against UAE and then hopefully Peru. I don't personally know who that manager would be. I don't think that's necessarily my job. I'd have sort of my ideas of who I'd want it to be, but the powers that be really should make that decision. But ultimately, Graham Arnold being at the helm, we've got to back him now. And the FA have made a good decision backing him um, because he's not in limbo. Um, It's much better that he knows that his job's not on the line heading into these games and that he can just focus on trying to win these games because they're so important to the future of Australian football. Peter, uh, is there a man going under the radar, an absolute managerial wizard in the Bulgarian third division that could come to save us? <laughs> that would be tough, I guess. I, I, I'd go looking in another country, definitely. <laughs> well, well, what do you think about the whole situation, Peter? A bit uh, from an outside perspective, I guess, not in the Australian bubble. Yeah, I, I, I guess, like Tom said, like maybe all three of us here like were defenders of Graham Arnold when, when in the early stages of the qualifiers. And uh, to be fair, he did well against the weaker teams. But yeah, the reality is that Australia will most likely miss the World Cup. That's my opinion, yeah. So... Uh, oh, you get going, Peter. Sorry. All good. Yeah, Keep yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought that uh, they, were, they were never going to fire him before the, uh, the last two games. Like, uh, I thought that he would eventually remain the, the coach until the end of the qualifiers. And I'm not saying that he deserves it like 100%, but uh, I really can't see a suitable candidate for the job at, at this point. Yeah, uh, people that follow me, I know that I'm a fan of Popovich, but I don't think he's a major upgrade on Arnie, to be fair. Uh, well, Jack, there's a question for Tom here. I'll save that. We'll ask that to Tom in just a second. But Jack, have you got anything to add to the discussion? Yeah, I mean, obviously you guys did the uh, podcast after the game originally, like, straight away after the Japan game, and I assume you covered this, but I just guess, like, it's it's hard to say, isn't it, with him in terms of, like, I guess more of, like, a tactical approach because it's not all been wrong. I felt like with Japan, with the squad he had, he kind of had to play that more direct physical approach because that is something you can clearly, like, outdo them in, whereas if we played through the midfield more often, like, try to outnumber, like, you know, like, individually beat and outskill uh, each one of their players, you can't really do that because they just have a better squad full stop. So, like, it's like he gets stuff like that right, but then he has things like the subs he made were dodgy, you know, like, all together, I think that I kind of agree with what's been said, essentially. Like, I would like to see someone come in, but who is the right replacement to come in? Because certainly I don't think there's anyone really putting up their hand in, in Australia, in Australia, uh, particularly considering where it is in the season. Tom is putting up his hand right now. Uh, do you want to take the Socceroos job, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> no, that that maybe there are some. Uh, I'll give it to Petar, Petar Petrov. He can be our foreign manager from overseas, straight from the streets of Plovdiv to to Sydney. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be too biased, I guess. If I'm the manager, Arzani will never get a call up in his life. So. <laughs> Well, anyway, as it should be, as it should be. Um, but what I wanted to add to what Jack was saying there is that. Um, I, I agree with that. And I think it's a, it's a really important point about the approach that we had to take in the Japan game. Obviously, with a couple of weeks of uh, retrospection now, I've calmed down a bit. Um, 
I've been able to think about it with my brain and not my heart after a very hard loss to take, to be honest. Um, and I think realistically, given the way that we played in Japan, where we had, we started with the box midfield, we played with Moy, Irvine, Rogic and, um, and Hrustich all in the same team. We still couldn't play through midfield, even when we had all four of our best midfielders playing. We had only Hrustich out of those four starting against, um, against Japan. Only Hrustich was available, sorry. Um, so it, it would have been very difficult to play that really progressive way that would sort of more associate with how the, the way that we'd want to play against Japan without those players so I think that was a um a really sound point. And I also wanted to add about the um the lack of Australian coaches. It's it's really disappointing in my opinion that there's no real candidate putting their hand up from Australia. I guess Popper is the obvious one. You've also got probably Kevin Musket at Yokohama. Yeah. I'm not sure he'd take the job for the soccer reserve. I think Yokohama's a pretty big job at Clubland, and I think he's more of a club manager than a national manager. Um and I don't think any of these people are more qualified than Graham Arnold when he took the job anyway, because Graham Arnold, he was so successful at Sydney FC. He was more than qualified to take the job. And I don't see how you could employ someone who's less qualified now than what Graham Arnold was in like 2018 or 2019 or whatever, um, and expect that we get better results. So I think if we were to go um, someone instead of Arnold, it would have to be someone overseas and then you're heading into prickly territory because there's no international windows between now and the games, I believe. So mm-hmm. it's hard to instill a new philosophy. It's hard to even know the players, really. So that's why I think it's easy to justify keeping him on board. I haven't seen much talk of this, and this could be a stupid point, but if we were to sack him now and find some manager from overseas, that it costs a fair bit of money, right? And money's hard to come by for football Australia. I think that's exactly. a very important thing to raise as well. Um, but Jack, you had your hand up there. I did. I forgot what I was going to say now. Oh, I might remember. Can I let you know? Yeah, of course. Peter, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> point, the, the point you made is perfectly valid, I guess, especially people talking about BLS. I think that's absolutely unrealistic. <laughs> Yeah, and we've yeah. got a couple questions coming through now. Jack, if you remember what you're going to say. Yes, I do remember. Uh, what I was going to say is that the one thing that I think you do have to give Graham Arnold, besides maybe like the tactical approach, which is what I'm more look at, is the fact that he can like kind of create this belief within a squad, I feel, in a short space of time. Like we saw it, I guess, kind of in the Olympics, where what I thought what happened there was he had the emotional side handled really well and then just the tactical aspects let him down because the, obviously the Argentina win was good with like, you know, a few like it could have been a loss if they hadn't got the red card and stuff like that. Spain was close and then it really, I can't even remember who they played last, but Egypt, wasn't Egypt. It? yeah, and it really, yeah. So, where it's, so I think he really can kind of like build this like us first them mentality. We can do this. We're better than any team and stuff like that within a short space of time, which could be really important for this couple of knockout games. But it just comes down to will he overcomplicate or overcomplicate, sorry, or even undercomplicate the, the tactical areas when that can be what costs us, obviously, as much as the emotional part of the game. Yeah. Uh, 
Tom, I know there's a lot of fire in your belly about uh, MacArthur. We can talk about that in a sec. We've got a couple of questions kind of relating to MacArthur and their manager, though, which I'll put to you now. First one is this. Question for Tactics, Tom. Why does Milicic deserve the FIFA Best Manager of the Year Award? And we'll go, we'll double up here. This one's from Dave Morgan, who asks, question for Tom, is Alante Milicic the man to save the Socceroos? Tom, you have to give a reason for why he deserves the best manager of the year, or do you have to give an actual reason? Because that's what so it must. My, my actual reason. <laughs> my actual reason for Ante Milicic, best manager of the year award, is that I've never been I've never seen a manager play a five-four-one low block every single game and manage to score four goals in a game more than once in a season. That is a very big <laughs> achievement. But I'll tell you what transition ball in the A-League. It is here and it is here to stay. Ulysses Davila, we need him just attacking long balls, dribbling past five people inside his own half. Who needs to play vertical passing possession football when you've got Ulysses Davila? Just try and let him run through everyone. So Ante Milicic is the man to save us all. And then in terms of is he the man to save the Socceroos, I think Ante Milicic answered that question himself last week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, can you remind us what he, he said last week for the people who aren't quite sure? <laughs> he said he's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Which, to be fair, go. was quite, um, I think, was quite like a nice thing to say in terms of like, it's actually, because I, I feel like most coaches would think they maybe are, you know, so like I, you have to give him credit for kind of like judging his own ability and not going like, oh, I'm better than him, you know, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting though, I don't know what this means or anything, but obviously do consider himself good enough to take the Matilda's job, but not so much for the Socceroos job. But um, oh, yeah, moving on, the World Cup draw uh, happened in the early hours of Saturday morning, Australia time, Friday night, your time, I think, Petter. So if we qualify, if we qualify, we'll be in Group D with Tunisia and our old mates, France and Denmark. So, Petter, uh, can you give an opinion on this draw? Or are we going too early and we're jinxing it by just by talking about it? <laughs> I don't want to be too harsh on the on the Socceroos, but I can't see him going to the finals. Firstly, <laughs> and and second, I I even if they go, I that seems like a really tough group to be in. Like they maybe could get a result from Tunisia, maybe they could even win a game against them. But Denmark and France are just too good. I, I mean, even even Denmark, I think they have gone like a couple levels up in recent years, and I think that that groups. It's basically sealed. France and Denmark are going to. Jeez. Personally, I think we're going to win the whole World Cup if we get to it. But Tom, <laughs> he's got his hand up. Yeah. Um, what I will say at the start is I'm wearing this France shirt to commemorate the fact that in about six months' time, we are going to celebrate the four and a half year anniversary of Australia being the closest team to beat the World Cup winners in the World Cup. France are going back-to-back. Australia are going to be the closest team to beat them because we're going to the World Cup, baby, and we're going to get a 2-1 loss to them again. <laughs> and, and Taden Hustic is going to Real Madrid after the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> in all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, though, on the group, I see it if we qualify, of course, because we're going to have to beat UAE and then Peru, which will be very... Um, interesting. I don't. I personally don't think the form that we're in at the moment is capable of beating Peru. Um, I think we can beat UAE playing badly, but 
and I think we can beat Peru. Even though Peru have declined since 2018, they have. That's just being honest. They've lost Farfan. They've lost Guerrero. Both, I think, Farfan's 37, Guerrero's 38. And a lot of their more important players from that 2018 squad are sort of getting over the hill in terms of age. You look at Andre Carrillo. He's struggling for minutes now, even at Al Halal. They're playing Musa Morega on the right instead of him and um, Odion Igalo up top. Uh, so he's he's sort of struggling there. Whether he starts for Peru or not is um, will be interesting. They've got the same amount of players playing in the top five leagues as us. That's two. They've got um, Renato Tapia at Delta Vigo and they've got um, Miguel Trauco at Saint-Étienne. But the thing with Peru is they've got a lot of these players in the South American leagues and in sort of nondescript leagues across the world that are very good players. You'll get Christian Cueva playing for Alfate in Saudi league. He's a very, very good player. Has sort of similar numbers in that league to Salem Aldasari, who we've seen quite literally terrorize the Socceroos on multiple occasions. And I think him, Cueva being a like a sort of a left winger, We've seen the Socceroos struggle defending the wide areas in a lot of games. We've struggled to defend Ito. Look at the last Japan game. Minamino destroyed Ryan Grant, quite simply. Um, so I think Peru is going to be a big test. But once we get there, I see it as a group of opportunity if we get to the World Cup because Denmark, they're a lot better team than they were in 2018. They did very well at the Euros. I think a lot of people, a lot of the rhetoric surrounding Denmark at the Euros was like, they sort of rallied around the fact or the, the incident that occurred with Christian Eriksen, which is true to some extent. But I all, I almost think that that's a bit disingenuous to the quality that they had because they, they played so well in so many of the games. You look at the, the back three that they had, so strong. A lot of physical leaders at the back with Kier and um, Christensen. And, and obviously they've got Vestergaard as well, who's been pretty poor since moving to Leicester, but he's a good player. Um, hard-working midfielders with Hoybier, Delaney, and even my boy Christian Norgard can't even get on the pitch for them, um, despite the fact that Delaney barely even starts for Sevilla, but that's another discussion. And then, yeah, I guess uh, Tunisia. Um, I say that is a game that we could possibly win because Tunisia really struggled at AFCON. They, um, they beat Nigeria in the round of 16, but they lost to Burkina Faso in the quarterfinals. So... I guess swings and roundabouts there, although they did beat Mali to get to the World Cup, uh, who have a very good midfield, Haidara, Basuma, and they also managed to naturalize or um, something like that with Abdullah Decore as well. So I think group of opportunity, take it as it comes. If we get there, it'll be awesome. Peter, I'm not expecting you to give anything else about Marley's midfield, but you had your hand up just before. No, I just wanted to... I, I agree with Tom totally about uh, Denmark. I think a lot of people just disrespect them and think it's like basically just what can they go to run because of their excellent motivation and stuff like that, which is absolutely absurd. I think they're a really good team and anyone will struggle against them in the World Cup. Now, moving on, I think. And by the way, guys, keep your questions coming through. Uh, Dave Morgan, thanks you, Tom, uh, Tactics Tom, for your response to that previous question. Well played to you. But moving on from the Socceroos and international affairs to uh, matters domestic. Uh, Jack, Sydney Derby, Sydney FC beat Western Sydney 3-2. It's a very fun game to watch, wasn't it? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I remember a lot of people were predicting a pretty dull affair and like to match, I guess, the dull crowd, which some other people might talk about. I, I didn't write that in the plan, but someone did, I think. But, you know, like I think that obviously it was a really, really entertaining game and there was a lot that happened. Like 
overall, I mean, what I was going to say is I think that one thing is that Keanu Bacchus is getting quite underrated for the role he's doing at the Wanderers in terms of like playing, coming in and playing as that deepest line midfielder. Like he was so good in the derby. That assist he got for that Tate Russell header, I know that was a really well-guided header. But the the weight on that ball to play that perfectly into his like running path where he didn't have to actually adjust, he just made that straight run and it was just like a perfect ball and just all game it was he was showing like threatening signs when he'd drop in and form a back three and he would be able to like break through and then like break through the press and stuff like that like it was really it was a really promising game from him and I think that like he's been slept on because I guess obviously over the last couple of years he hasn't played as much and hasn't played as well when he has but I think it's really exciting to see him coming back into form but the thing I was gonna ask I guess like kind of pose to everyone is can him and Yugarkovic play together? Because in my opinion, he played a lot better in the derby when he had Antonis who would kind of move a line further more often than not. Whereas when he was with Yugarkovic late stage, not that that's a bad thing, they were kind of alternating as the sixes, one would drop in and the other would stay in the line above, like in terms of like lines of the midfield and defence, one would be in the defensive line to support, build up and the other one would kind of just hold a position. Do you guys reckon they can play together or do you think it's better to have Antonis alongside him and Yugarkovic would then be frozen out of the team in that case? I'd be interested to know your thoughts. I think that's really interesting. I think the the game that automatically comes to my mind in terms of Western Sydney playing well with the both of them in the team was that really hectic game against Melbourne City. If you remember, um, they played Rodwell. Sort oh, of yeah, as that, that one, like, yeah. He was just late arrivals, late arrivals, late arrivals. Yeah, just, like, that was weird because they man-marked in midfield, so that's what yeah. kind of got them undone. And their possession yeah. was also really weird because they were super narrow. But yeah, I but that. I think it was Bacchus sort of playing higher up on the right-hand yeah. side and Yugarkovic playing as a single pivot, but Bacchus coming deep to receive whenever um, Yugarkovic got pressed. I don't know. Like they're pretty similar I, players, to be honest. That's I why personally prefer. I personally prefer Bacchus as a single pivot Same. by himself. That's why. So I think for a developmental aspect for his game, he should be playing as a six, and that 100%. would mean Yugarkovic being thrown out of the team, which is a bit cruel to him because hasn't really done anything mm. wrong. Yeah, that- yeah. On that one, I think uh, as Jack said, uh, maybe the fact that you got, uh, the fact that Bacchus has been like used in all sorts of midfield positions hasn't helped him in his development mm-hmm. like maybe it's hindered him a bit because like uh Kyle Robinson used him as an eight uh, used him as deep uh, like as a deep six then he used him as a in a double pivot which sometimes young players need to settle in one position in order to go another level up well, and one uh, thing, just just before I just before we move on, I think with Bacchus, I've been really impressed with him this season. I don't know about you yeah. guys, but no, that's what I was saying. He's been yeah. like he's such a cultured football. Like when he gets in the ball, it looks he's one of those players. When you get when he like receives the ball, he looks more at home than when he's just running in general, which I think is just yeah. cool to watch. You know, and I like he plays really well. Like when he does it, this guy's aggressive passes. The problem is that he doesn't really back himself to do it enough. But like it's like stuff like mm-hmm. I think within when he plays as that single six. Sorry to cut you off, Tom, but um, in this system, his flaws like the fact that he can't play very well back to goal because he doesn't really scan that well all the time. That's kind of like uh, put aside, and he can just you can just focus on his strengths. So I think it works really well. And when when you bring in Yugarkovic and they have to rotate with these roles, he's sometimes not playing. He's playing a bit awkwardly, and he's not getting on the ball and stuff like that. Like he, because when you're a player 
particularly like a six, you want to be getting on the ball. You want to be spraying passes just to feel that touch, feel the confidence. When you uh, go through a 15 minute spell without getting on it very much, then it can, you know, like just hinder your confidence. You might make a stray pass. And within, I guess, like particularly derbies that can, you know, change the result of the game. But go on, Tom, sorry. No, I I 100% agree. And I think one of the things with Bacchus, one of his really good strengths is that he's capable of receiving the ball on the half turn. And I think that's a very underrated skill. As you said, he's not very good at receiving the ball with his back to goal. But on the half turn, Mm -hmm. he's very, very capable of doing that. Probably not as in the same way as someone like Metcalf because whenever you think of Metcalf, you think Metcalf receiving on the half turn, dashing forward, playing an outfall into transition to one of the wide players. I don't think Bacchus is as confident with his progressive or penetrative passing to do that just yet. I think he is a slightly different player. I see him as more of a 6 or a 6.5, whereas Metcalf's more of like an attacking 8 almost. But I think Bacchus definitely has that in his locker and I think his ability to evade pressure in those situations is very, very valuable. And sorry, just one more thing before we move on. So I just want to say that pass he played to Russell was very Amazing. reminiscent of something that Luke Braddon does. And I think if yeah. you're playing, I'm not saying that he's as good because he's definitely not, particularly not a long passing because it's too inconsistent. But if you've got that technique to re- to recognize the run, to recognize the space he's running into and to play that perfect ball to him. And obviously, like I said, not take nothing away from the header because that was astonishing. But, you know, like the pass to play, like that kind of long ball then you've got a really good player there just in that one aspect. And that's not even talking about all of the other like confidence parts of his game. Yeah. The Tony Kroos of the A-League. Yeah. I think one of, one of, one of his main strengths is that the fact that he has like, so he can do so many different passes. I, I remember, I think he made another assist against Adelaide, if I'm not wrong, which was yep. pretty impressive as well. It was like between the two defenders. Like, oh, uh, yeah, that was such a nice ball. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. You touched on the header there, Jack. That was the loopiest header in the history of the headers. <laughs> I reckon that final goal was, like it was in slow motion. But uh, just while we're on Western Sydney and their players, I suppose, um, Peter, we'll put this one to you as well. Um, they had an opportunity to kind of jump above all those teams near the bottom there and get kind of above that jam, but obviously they didn't win. So their second bottom, what do you think would be a satisfactory way for Western Sydney to finish the season now? That's a hard one. I guess like uh, the the fans will want to see like uh, the team just fighting for the badge, like doing better than they've done until now. And I think Erdem uh, has has done fairly well since he's come in. Like, uh, he's at least, he's a coach that, like, can make make people, like, that can really motivate footballers and and get get them playing the way he wants them to play. So I, I think he'll, they'll get a couple of results and maybe upset a couple of the bigger teams until the end of the season. But I really can't see them doing that well like the one, one thing i'm big at is like uh signing profiles and not names and i don't think uh, western sydney have done that i think they've signed like once again they signed them a loads of players that they didn't need like one that comes into mind is the the foreign goalkeeper and maybe uh, even Antonis as well. They they didn't really need him, especially when if Rodwell was going to play like in that midfield trio, like wherever he wanted to play. 
Uh, so yeah, I, I think they'll they'll really need to have another rebuild if they want to be uh, challenging for for like the top three or top four. I think they can they can definitely get into the top six next season if like they overachieve. But the squad doesn't look like on on the level of City or even Western United at this point. Tom, moving on to the Sydney side of things. Over East, Trent Bahaja, two assists, uh, two goals, sorry, and an assist, assisted Adam LaFondra, instrumental in the win for the Sky Blues. So well, why, why do you reckon he was so good? What made him so good this game? Well, I think one of the things that Sydney have been missing this season, and I'm sure Jack can expand on this as the resident Sydney FC expert here, but from my viewing... I think Sydney have lacked a lot of pace in their attack and Buhaja gives you pace. Like he's very good at stretching that last line. What I was most impressed with Buhaja though, we all know that he's very fast. I think his technical qualities or merit as a footballer at this level have come into question on multiple occasions. But I think he proved to us on the weekend that he's more than capable of producing composure in front of goal. Whether that's something he's specifically aimed to improve or not is um is sort of that, that doesn't matter like because he did it look look at that goal that he scored cutting back onto his left foot sending chanchar for a hot dog puts it into the top bins it was it was a beautiful goal really good to see um and if he had done that more times this season with easier finishes as well then probably be on five to ten goals Jack, you can let rip on your expansion. Yeah, yeah, I guess I was just going to say with that, like Bahaja is very much, I think I've already said this about Bacchus, for example, although less so with Bacchus, Bahaja is very much a confidence player. So you see he scores a tap-in against MacArthur on Wednesday and then all of a sudden is doing, uh, finding his composure and like confidence within himself, which he just has not demonstrated throughout the season so far. But I think if you go back to when he first joined Sydney before he tore his ACL, he was originally going to displace Alex Brosk in the side. Brosk was going to become the super sub. Like I remember that 3-0 derby win, the semi-final, I think, in the FFA Cup. I just remember that finish. I think it was like outside of the boot. And that's like pure, like it's quite cultured, uh, classy, you know, like a, just a really nice, clever finish, like a good way of just getting the ball into the back of the net. But like Tom said, what he has is pace and also within Sydney's system, which I critis- which I personally criticise a lot in my head, not so much in public, but I don't think it works anymore. I, I don't like it. I think they should change, but whatever. The point is that... I need to play Linkovic yeah. at the Central 10, Jack. <laughs> no, 4-3-3, Tom. But, um, <laughs> but no, Bahaja, they've got this... The, the, the runs, the right runs where into the channels that the strikers can make, which Nassim can make to an extent that still to be uncomfortable because he's a winger. They've signed a winger and now we're trying to make him a strike, like could play 4 3 3, but whatever. Lafondre is less capable of making those runs anymore. Bahaja is the perfect player to have making those runs from in to out because it means that he can face one on one with the defender. It means that he doesn't have to, um, like he, he's like running towards goal. It works well for him because that, like when he takes on a player, he does it directly, but he doesn't take them on with skill. He takes them on by drawing them inside and just hitting it as far, well, not as far as he can, but far. And yeah, he's the ball. A, but I think he's just yeah, really he's fast. Straight, straight yeah. line armor, yeah. Yeah, and I think that without <laughs> Luke Brandon in the side, you have a midfield. Luke Brandon is a midfielder who can 
obviously really dictate play, can play that like really killer ball when you don't expect it, like disguise passes, long passes out wide. And now that he's gone, I think that it actually kind of makes sense for Sydney to play this more channel ball style of football where they rely on second balls. Jasbek and Retre are both quite good at mopping up second balls. And then they go inside. It doesn't work as well, but it, I guess in a short-term plan, like I said, I'd rather hear something different. But if you're going to stick with the 4 this is kind of the best way to play it for me. You got Tom looks like he's about to actually hold a gun to my head. But um, <laughs> I think that like, but with Bahaja, he kind of works in that system. And I think that's all I was going to say. I think I've run out of stuff to say. I'm scared of Tom now. <laughs> no, no, no. i uh, move on. So you got yeah, We'll move on. But I've got, I've, I was just going to say, I think Bahaja reminds me a lot of uh, Petar Petrov's favorite footballer, Timo Werner. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Started something there. Started something there. getting all flustered, can't yeah, I, yeah? <laughs> There's something in there, yeah, yeah. I think... Called him out, Tom. I think Bukharja might be a better finisher, though. <laughs> uh, we could see him lined up for Chelsea very, very soon, but as I promised, moving on. Oh, no. yeah. <laughs> Um, and guys keep your questions coming if you've got any questions comments anything like that drop them in the Facebook or Twitter chat wherever you're tuning in but moving on um, I should say Sydney FC jumped to fifth with that result Western Sydney second bottom as we said but at the top there are a couple of big results on the weekend just gone firstly Petter Melbourne City beat Wellington 6-0 away from home to extend their lead at the top. Yeah, I, I, I think it's basically gone now. Like they're winning the the league. But uh, I, what what fascinated me more about this game was like Wellington. They were uh, before the game. I think they were on a ten game. I think they they've lost only two games from their last ten or something like that. So. They were doing pretty well considering how many injured players they have and the fact that they're basically playing away every single game. Uh, and uh, the loss to City, I think they just burned out. Like they they didn't have the players to rotate. So uh, it was going to happen due to the short squad that they've had available. But the bad thing is that they picked the wrong team to lose against. <laughs> because like... Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, Peter. Continue. Yeah, uh, yeah. City, City didn't have the best first half. Like uh, Wellington were doing pretty well, especially in the wide areas. I think Magari and Old had a fantastic first half against uh, uh, Jenkinson, but uh, the the second half they just ran out of gas and City were ruthless. I think like Tilio and Metcalf, they just didn't look like players that had travelled like I don't know how many hundreds of kilometers. Tom, uh, in the our little rundown here, we're not allowed to swear on this, but you are quite <laughs> angry at at the state of the pitch. <laughs> before oh, yeah. I talk about, but, but before I talk about that, I would just like to make a prayer on behalf of the XG gods for Ollie Sale. <laughs> um, he's, he's actually after, making a prayer <laughs> after after keeping out about three expected goals the week before. I think City scored six on about two expected goals. So the XG gods were always target, back six Ollie goals. Sale. <laughs> I think I think it was lower than two, actually. Can I can I say on that? Lower so than they two. scored there you go. 
it was a small sample size, but they scored six from 2.23. Oh, yeah. But Leckie's goal was 0.86. So if you get rid of Leckie's <laughs> goal, they scored five goals from an expected 1.37. And obviously, I didn't actually watch the goals, all the goals, and I can't really remember them. So there might have been miscalculations because that's what happens when it's a small sample size. But that they were, they were all set pieces. They were all set pieces. <laughs> Three goals from set pieces. <laughs> I think there was actually uh, maybe a, a miscalculation at one point because uh, before Tilio's first goal, I think he missed an opportunity that was 1v1 against Sale. Sale, um, and he scored, He saved it with his foot. It was a De Gea yeah, save. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, it should have been with the higher expected goals value. Yeah, it was, I think uh, they, record, they record the last shot of the move, maybe. I might have oh, gone yeah, completely yeah. wrong. I, I think they, they might be doing that, yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, look, with, reg- with regards to this game, though, I think I, I, I was so saddened to see Oli Sale concede six because he is the best goalkeeper in this league, in my opinion. I think Mark Birrigidi isn't too far behind. Daniel Garb, I know you're uh, quick to, to say that on my Twitter the other day. Thank you. We love you very much. Uh, but in my opinion, Oli Sale is slightly better. I just love the way he's so imposing, even though he conceded six, that. Like he really couldn't have done too much about any of the goals except for I think that last goal from Tilio, where he could have come quicker off his line, in my opinion. But the rest of the goals are all sort of like set pieces, sort of tough to save, and he saved that really good one from Tilio as well. But yeah, to the pitch, that was abs- an absolute an absolute disgrace. Like genuinely, like there's there's a pitch across the road, the, the there's a park across the road from my house. I reckon that would probably be a better pitch, to be honest. And that's a pitch where Harper's seen my futsal ability, gracing the greats like Thomas Williams over there. It's, it's, it, was, it was an absolute shambles. And in all seriousness, right, if we're playing behind closed doors for pretty much no reason on a pitch like that, the Socceroos um, – are pretty bad at the moment. We only finished one point above Oman and don't look like we're going to qualify for the World Cup. There was only 10,000 people at the Sydney Derby and a lot of Australian football is in shambles at the moment. But I'll tell you what, it still doesn't feel like we've hit rock bottom. And the reason it doesn't feel like we've hit rock bottom is because when you think that when you hit rock bottom, there'll be this big explosion. You think everything will be bad, but there isn't a big explosion. You know why there's not a big explosion? Because not enough people actually care about this league for it to be a big explosion. And that is really, 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 really sad. And I don't know what else to say because it, it just really saddens me that we're at this state right now. And it feels like we could go even lower. And I hate to say it, but it's true. And it's really annoying. And I know we, we're having this fun chat, but that really annoyed me. That really annoyed me, that that pitch in that game, especially seeing only 10,000 people at the Sydney Derby and placing that within the greater context of Australian football at the moment. Got to follow up on that, Tom, for you. Other than all the sale conceding goals and dodgy pitches and a lack of explosions, what else sanded you in life? <laughs> Sorry? What, what else saddens you in life, Tom, other than those three oh. things? <laughs> what else saddens me in life? That is a good question. Um this is getting when, so, so deep. Who thought, who thought that live, live recordings would have brought out this? 
Just therapy. Session. A very good oh. question. It, it saddens. I'll tell you what saddens me in life. Ante Milicic is definitely one of the, the things that saddens me in life. The MacArthur Football Club saddens me in life. Um, what, what else? About, what, what about Jake Coleman playing on as a left wing back for MacArthur? <laughs> that also saddens me. Crane cutting saddens. inside with that no one overlapping to just like cut off the pitch by like 10 meters. That saddens me in life. What I will I, say I, though, Tom, is about um, just on the Wellington point. I mean, like, I don't think it's, I know you weren't criticizing them directly, but I think it, it is good to say the fact that like they are playing away from home. So there's not much they can do when they don't get enough fans to the game. Like they have it behind closed doors because of, because commercial partners won't go like, they, they won't just, oh, I'm struggling to, the comments popped up, but they um they won't go, they won't, sponsorships just won't pay because they're like, why would we pay for like five fans to show up to the game? And that's fair enough because that like the home grounds ages away. So I think that that obviously everything else is really bad, but I don't think that's too much of a worry. And it's like the pitch was horrible, but you know, like it's, there is a lot of stuff going on behind there where it's like, well, I think they're just trying to survive in terms of finding a place for each game before they get back to a uh, uh, New Zealand, which they will soon. So that's good. That's, that's a positive that's thing. That's fair. That's fair. I think it's fair to have it behind closed doors, but I think, like, it's one, it's not a good look, and two, if you're going to play it behind good. closed doors, play it on a pitch which is, like, capable of playing professional football on it because that was an absolute disgrace, as my friend Brenton Ray had just commented on Facebook. Thank you, Brenton. Melbourne Victory's member of the month earlier this year, so everyone get around <laughs> oh. him. Congratulations, Brenton. Massive. Um, but well Peter, from what Sandins, all of us, and it's good to let that all that kind of thing out, but from what Sandins, us four guys, to what Sandins, the population of Tarnit, Western United, they could have gained ground on Melbourne City with a result, a good result against the Mariners, but they drew to all and they'd probably be a bit disappointed by that result. I, I think they were actually closer to losing with that penalty at the last moment. Yeah, I think uh, I actually watched that one with one eye because I was at work. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, well, it, it was always meant to happen. Like Western United, they, they've done really well. I think John Lewis has like done a lot better than most of us thought before the start of the season. And uh, that also comes to like the fact that he signed the right foreigners. I think Prilovic and Lacroix. I'm not sure how how you spell that name, but yeah, I think uh, they've done really well. But uh, it was unsustainable, and that was always going to happen. And uh, Central Coast just didn't didn't stop running all game and gave him a hard a hard game. Well, question for the people tuning in and asking this is going to make the comments absolutely blow up. And also a question, the same question to you, Jack. Jason Cummings with a brace. Do we cap the cum dog? Oh, um, no, probably. I don't think so, to be honest. I think that, I mean, I know Pet is nodding because I've seen his opinions on Twitter about it. <laughs> I think that he doesn't, he's not just, he's just simply not of that quality and I think that I'd rather Fornaroli start than him. I think that Fornaroli brings a lot more despite playing, I guess, for a lesser team in terms of league position. I just think with Jason Cummings, like Petal made, made a really good point on Twitter I saw. I don't know whether he'd be suited to playing as a lone striker because I think that his 
he drops off well, but he never really holds up play with a defender behind him, which is a completely different area, which is something... Uh, I think Jack's muted himself there. We'll, I, I uh, didn't. I'll, 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 this is what happened He's last time. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think other people have stronger opinions on this than me, but I'd say at the moment, probably not, essentially. Peter. Yeah, I think if you if you just, like, go in and check the reactions from everyone from Scotland, what they think about, like, even the idea about Jason Cummings being cut from Australia, like... You you know what 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 it about like basically like Jack said I think he's doing well alongside Urania who I I think I'll do well alongside Urania if I play for the hundred percent he's class he's so, so well. good yeah so many so different good. strike partners sorry just he's to say perfect. Matt Simon Maresh Cummings all completely different players with completely different skill sets and Urania has adapted perfectly to make them and himself look really good in very different ways. But sorry, go he's on. a baller. He's an absolute baller. I think so he's intelligent. So so versatile, so so intelligent. As Jack said, he can do almost everything that a coach wants from a striker. So yeah, the Cummings in a four-three-three would struggle, especially on the international level. I'm sure of it. Also, Tom, just yeah, on coming before we move on to a rant from you, <laughs> just on the hashtag, just on the hashtag, come dog. Um, look, I don't think he's objectively a bad player, and I'd hate to drop the f word here again, but dare I say, his five assists this season have been quite fugazi because, <laughs> as much as he's a good goal scorer, I'm not sure that. Well, that he is the greatest sort of player at br- bringing others into the game. He's got five assists, I know, but a, a couple of them have been really dodgy, like Paul Pogba, 17, 18-esque five-yard passes that are just like looking and they're becoming assists as a result of that. They're not like line-breaking, penetrative passes. I think he did one really good one on the weekend to Jacob Farrell, but um, but... I don't see that as like a big trade in his game. So I think five assists isn't exactly representative of his ability in that area. And I think five goals in 12 games, yeah, it's a decent record. But playing alongside Urenia, it's sort of swings and roundabouts. As as Petar said, I think even myself, I, w- I would look good next to that beautiful specimen. And <laughs> <laughs> he would look very good next to yourself. You're a very beautiful specimen, Tom Williams. But out in Southwest Sydney, MacArthur FC beat Perth Glory 4-2. We'll talk about Perth and their collapse in a sec. But, Tom, back to you. MacArthur scored four goals. They're now the second highest scoring team in the league. But you're still angry about them. Yeah, look, I just – I'm really annoyed at the way that they use the Villa now. Like, because you look, you look at that pass that he makes for Al Hassan Toure for that goal, and my mind just is 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 baffled. I'm like, Davila is basically only touching the ball inside his own half for the whole game. Like, just get the ball up the pitch, get him in the final third, have him play between the lines, and allow him to play those passes because. He can pick out that final ball so well, like so well. That was one of the best assists all I've seen all season, I think. 
just the weight on the pass. Like it was disguised as well, cuts it across, so nice. Um, but look, they play transitional football. Uh, against some teams, it works well. They went 2-0 down, but fair play getting back into the game. They beat the worst team in the league. I don't think it's exactly the biggest achievement. <laughs> but <laughs> um, look, four goals. Hooray to MacArthur. Hooray to Ante Milicic. At least the Villa got a goal and an assist. That's what I'm saying. Ale Ulysses de Villa. Uh, Brenton Ray in the chat here has put a comment in about the Asian Super League, but we might talk about that later if we have time. But uh, Tom, also on the socials, Alan Riley asked for a military rant from you and he got what he asked for. So uh, thank you very much for satisfying the wants of our uh, audience. Jack, your hand is up. Yeah, I was just going to say, Tom, with Devere and I guess the way he's playing, the, what really saddens me more than anything watching that pass is that he did it like almost on a one in three game level when he was playing for Wellington because they played that perfect way that suits him in terms of getting him in between the lines with opening up space with that quick uh, vertical football. And it seems like MacArthur are doing it a different way where they've just gone like, oh, we've seen you do that for Wellington. Can you do that? But can you just do all of it instead of just like, like instead of like, can you be the one that plays the pass and run onto your own pass, dribble pass two, then run onto, you know, like stuff like that. It's just like, it's just a, they're overplaying him. And I feel like Craig, and I mentioned before the fact that he's playing as a right wing back, which is fine. But there's no support for him. It's essentially get the ball out to Craig Noon. He'll take on his play one-on-one. If he cuts inside with his left foot and literally he'll come to the edge of the box and he'll be at the edge of the box before someone then goes, I'm going to peel wide to kind of like open up space. It's really frustrating to watch because then Craig Noon's kind of like, well, what do I do from here? Because I've been closed down. I've been shown even further inside and I have no option like wide. And then it's ever reliant on him to make a fantastic cross, which he does so often. And it, it, I guess the more, most frustrating thing is it still works, but like it just, the potential, if like, you know, you get Craig Noon and Devere combining and I guess similar styles to how they did at Melbourne City and Wellington Knicks respectively. And it's so tantalizing the prospect and it's just, it's, yeah, it's very dependent on them and like they're doing a lot more than they really should be in terms of chance creation because it, yeah. It's all them. Peso, we do have to touch on Perth before we move on. We are running uh, 50 minutes now, so get through this quickly. <laughs> Perth, Glory, we're 2-0 up after 20 minutes, and obviously they lost 4-2. What happened? Yeah, I actually missed the second half of the game, which is a real shame. <laughs> but the first half was very – I was very impressed with the youngsters, the part but the youngsters, basically, Oster, Coley, all of them were pretty good. I think they were doing really well, considering that they had Osama Malik in midfield. <laughs> so, Shades uh, of Warren Joyce with Melbourne City, Osama yeah. Malik and bloody Michael Jakobsen in midfield. <laughs> yeah, and after the game, uh, I think Zatkovic said that they were missing something like 11 or 12 players, which is... Like pretty bad would, would be pretty bad for anything, but I guess that's that's per season in a, in a nutshell. And uh, like I said about about West, Western Sydney, they they've just recruited names, which was like it's it, that made their demise. Like guys like like Sardinero and Sturridge, they they didn't need those guys. And the fact that they were missing eleven players, even if they weren't missing them, I'm not sure if they would have made any difference. It, uh, aside from Bruno Fornaroli, of course. Yeah. 
just just uh, quickly, yeah. could I could I could I add two things to the uh, to the list of things that sadden me and Jack? <laughs> yes, <laughs> just, just go for it. Let me just, put the graphic real back quick. Up. Graphic back up. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> Rafa's magic hand. <laughs> um, uh, the first thing is Sydney as a city because ultimately it's wet there every bloody day or every time that I'm there and I paid $14 for a chocolate shake in Circular Quay, which oh. not happy Jan. I like Sydney. I live in Sydney. <laughs> I should have got the waffles like Harper. The waffles are better than my shake. <laughs> well, Tom, not, not to get all competitive, but last week I went to Sydney with you at pissed down the whole time, and the week I just got up to Adelaide, which is the most boring place on the planet. So I'm, I'm really doing it tough here with the, my travel plans. It's, it's not been a good couple of weeks for travel. And then, and then my second thing that really saddens me would be Neil Simons, if you're here watching this. <laughs> The thing that saddens me is when you dangle a wife scout subscription for me and Jack for six months and then don't deliver. So you're being called out here, Neil Simon's live on the King Check your thing that saddens Jack and Tom. Jeez. Okay. Um, is that Neil- we need to do this to ourselves, assuming Neil doesn't know. <laughs> Neil, if you're tuning in, please comment. If he's tuning in, he's probably going to unplug us from the Kick360 yeah. right now, I reckon. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Jack, um, yes. Shine in wants to know about Perth's right back, of course, Josh Rawlins. He's rumoured to be getting a move to the Netherlands, the Eredivisie. Is it too early for him? Do you think he's 17? Do you reckon it's the right time, or is it another classic case of leaving too early? I think it's personally for me, it's the right time as long as he plays like 90 minutes or like, you know, almost 90 minutes every game. Well, yeah, like plays in the majority of the games essentially because I think he's a really, really promising player. I think that he's showing so like really good signs in his like intelligence defensively going forwards. Like his technique is really good. He's so composed under pressure. He's showed versatility to be able to play as more of an attacking right back and also as a central defender as well, which means he can kind of play in any of those roles in between, you know, like even like as a right-sided centre-back. So I think that it's, he's shown real promise and I just hope that he gets game time essentially. So it's hard to know without knowing the club because it then, you know, if he joins Ajax, you can assume he's probably not going to play any games at all, which sucks because you don't want him doing that. So it, I think it's it's a hard one, but for me that's the case. I think Petter had his hand up there. He did. Yeah, the just uh, on the Olens thing, I think that uh, basically uh, if he's joining a, a, a team from the first tier, I think he's definitely going to play for their young side. So not sure how they call their second teams, but I, I yeah, really can't true. even there. I can't. I really can't see him getting consistent ninety minutes. So I think that it maybe it's a bit too late considering that he's just 17 that's like he doesn't look like a 17 year old as, as well but mm. yeah maybe another year in, year in Australia even on one would be a, a better choice maybe mm. sorry uh, just quickly yeah. to add to that as well um, so a couple of years ago if we cast our minds back Thomas Deng made the move to um to PSV but played for young PSV in their in their youth side and really struggled to get minutes in that team. 
And I think Deng was probably slightly more established at A-League level than um, than Rawlins was. So I think that's a fairly good marker, although I really love Rawlins. I think he's got a lot of potential. But even in those Dutch youth teams, it's very tough to get a look in. Like Thomas Deng was playing against like Frankie Dion and stuff like that when he was at Young PSV. Frankie Dong was at Young Ajax. So you're playing against superstars of the future if you're playing even against new teams in the, in the Netherlands. Denk, Denk actually had over 17 games in the league at that point. There you go, yeah. There you go. Uh, now, over to South Australia, uh, the most interesting state in the country, the original rivalry, Tom, uh, where Melbourne Victory got a an important 1-0 win over Adelaide United. Yeah, definitely. Really, really important. It's always important when you go and um, beat Adelaide, especially when it's for the third time of the season <laughs> over out um, in, in Hindmarsh, which uh, has received rave reviews from Harper Pestinger, who was covering it at ground level uh, on, 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 on Saturday night, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good game of football for a 1-0. I thought, to be honest, Adelaide um, were probably the better team throughout, despite my obvious allegiances towards Melbourne victory, as you can see behind me. But um, look, I think Melbourne victory got the, got the job done. That's all that matters for, um, for them at the moment, because uh, too many draws they, they needed to win and by hook or by crook, they got there. And I think one of the things which was really good about that, um, about that game before I forget was uh, Francesco Margiotta. Um I, I don't want to forget about talking about him because he's endured quite a tough one to two weeks and I'm not going to confess to being the biggest fan of him. I don't think he's the best player ever. I don't think he's the worst player ever. I think we've just got to see him for what he is. And that is, he's a decent player. He's, he's not bad. He's not amazing. He's he's decent. And I think the form of Nick D'Agostino and, and sort of D'Agostino overtaking Marjotta in the pecking order has sort of taken away from Marjotta and maybe decreased his confidence a little bit. But we saw in the lead up to that first goal, Marjotta has quality. He can produce. And I thought that was one of the best games he's played all season. Tom, back to you. A question on Twitter from Alan Riley. Uh, was yeah. the way Adelaide played due more to the way Popper set up victory after the early goal or because of Adelaide's quality on the day? Can I just say something about Marjotta? Of course. Yeah, go. Yeah, go. I, I, I agree with Tom and I think that... Uh, Maybe he's he's just not meant to be a lone nine, just like we we said about Cummings. I think maybe in a in a classic four four two that most A League teams play, he would be a lot better. I think he's he's good in leaking up play and playing with the game in front of him, like just just like he did with the assist uh, the pre assist for Geria. That's really true. I think he'd actually be really good at Central Coast. Come to think about it, he, he would actually work at Central Coast quite well. Yeah. Um, Would you put um, D'Agostino up front with him, even? I personally would. Yeah. Not I over Brimmer, though, surely. Sorry? That's not, not over Brimmer, though. No, if you had no, to take no. Over, yeah. not over Brimmer. Yeah, no, I get what you mean, though, yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting, yeah, but I think Victory have so many quality players in that attacking third, it's probably difficult to play both of them. To answer that question, though, from uh, from Mr. Riley... Fantastic to see him tuning in, really getting involved in the kick cast. We love to see that. Um, but look, I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. I thought 
like it's a very characteristic trait of Tony Popovich to sort of put the the foot on the brake a bit after an early goal. Um, and especially away from home, I think Tony Popovich probably knew that uh, that they that we could probably come away with the three points through just resolute defending, which we did quite well throughout the game. But I also think you can't take anything away from Adelaide. I thought they played a great game, to be honest. I thought they played a really good game. Craig Goodwin was a threat for the whole 90. His link-up's amazing. Crossing's amazing. He looked great. Something out of nothing all the time. Really um, did well in that final third. But, yeah, uh, my answer would be a bit of both. I thought Adelaide played a pretty good game, but ultimately victory stood pretty stoic and solid at the back and yes thank you once again brenton ray i've seen your comment pop up on the screen and it's good to see that you had the chance to watch the replay and that paramount plus had finally posted it for you (laughs) very good indeed and keep those questions and comments coming through guys if you are tuning in we'd love to get you involved but jack the final game of the weekend that we've got to cover brisbane raw two newcastle jets nil uh Really all started happening after Lucas Moragas was sent off uh, for the Jets with 10 minutes to go or so. It really exploded into life with a few goals there. Yes. I didn't watch the end of the game uh, because I watched like every game over the weekend and I got a bit bored. But um, what I will say is that on the Excel, it says Jay O'Shea is not getting the respect he deserves, which is really interesting. So is it right if I just ask that to... That others. You go for it, mate. Take take over my role as host. We're, sorry, I'm really sorry, Halva. No, I'm sorry. No. You can ask. Do you want to ask oh, that mate. instead? No, you, you ask that all you want. You, like honestly, we could just have you three here, and I want better because my opinions are shit, and that's why I don't give them. So he swore. Uh, he swore. <laughs> I did. Sorry, Neil. Petter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I think Joe Shea is basically one of the best uh, eights in the league. And 100%, 100%. Maybe the fact that, that he's playing for Brisbane, who aren't great, maybe they, they, they aren't great this season, I won't lie. But uh, the fact that, that he's playing for Brisbane and maybe not so many people are watching him play and watching his game specifically, maybe that hinders him a bit. Like, I mean, his reputation in social media, if that's even important, I'm pretty sure he doesn't know who we are as well. But <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think he's fantastic. If he played for, like, let's say, Melbourne victory, he, he would be like Ninkovic level of, of appreciation. And, Tom, and last night, no, uh, once again, he was like basically the best player for Brisbane. He's levels above almost everyone else. I think... Maybe just like Aldrit and Akbaria, maybe similar to his level in terms of importance. Tom, have you got anything to add on that game or Jay O'Shea? <laughs> I love Jay O'Shea. I, I, I think I put out a tweet after the game. He's, I think, one assist behind Daniel Pena now uh, this season, and I believe he leads the league in chances created. So he's a very, very good player in the final third. He can create something out of nothing. He's been thrown around in a lot of different positions this season, especially as Brisbane sort of moved from that three at the back to just more of like a four four two now. Um, he was playing alongside Lascano, like in that sort of first line of pressure, which I thought was a bit weird. I personally prefer him 
as either like a free eight or someone that um, plays in a two but has the freedom to go forward. So I think he does that role really well. And I think his crossing is so good. He provides some really good assists, really puts the ball in the danger area a lot. I think he's very underappreciated in this league. And like Petar said, if he was playing for a team in Victoria or New South Wales, I think he'd be getting a lot more credit. Just Jack. just to oh, so sorry. sorry. No, you're oh. going gone. Yeah, just a quick one. I just I'm I'm a bit I'm a bit surprised that he hasn't been played in a in a three with Agbari and, and uh, uh Steinman more because yeah. I think yeah he his best role would be like in that sort of three eight slash ten where he can be a lot a lot more creative and get on the ball more. But I guess that's due to problems in other parts of the pitch for Brisbane. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I think that it's interesting when he when they play a three four three, because he's essentially like the link player. Like he comes deepest of the midfielders to receive the ball and build up and spray those passes, and then is the most further forwards kind of in um in in the final third in, out of the two uh, in midfield, which is really interesting because I thought Stein was going to be really good alongside him, but seems to have been frozen out of the team a little bit, which is uh, interesting. But I think just like in terms of what he offers, I think that maybe it's because the way he plays as a six is a little bit weird because he doesn't look like a cultured six. Does that make sense? He looks like a ten playing as a six, but that does not at all ha- and uh, that that does not at all like lower his effectiveness in the role. Uh, but uh, that could be why maybe because you don't look at him and go, wow, he's amazing. But it's only when you like realize when you look at the game closely and look at his movements and how important he really is to every aspect of Brisbane's play and possession. And then at the uh, chances created, you know, like everything like that, that because he also takes majority of their set pieces, I think, you know, like he's a, like every, he's, every one of them. Every yeah, single one, yeah. Yeah, like the most important player in Brisbane's team, without a doubt, particularly in possession. Which And he's also quite active defensively to an extent, you know, so he's a really good player. Yeah, Brisbane would literally have zero wins this season without him. Like, he's, he's so important to their team. Without him, they would be really, really struggling, I think. Jack, moving on from that, you did some reporting for Kick360 today, Monday. And you wrote about the A-Leagues and the PFA uh, partnering with Go Bubble Community to hide hateful comments on social media. Uh, can you tell us about what you wrote about and what this story is? Yeah, it looks really interesting, actually. So, like, Go Bubble Communities, they're like this software thing which they hide, like, uh, you know, mean, what, what's a better word for mean? abusive comments Not that's, nice. what, that's what they, that's what they said that's what they said in the press release they hide abusive comments uh on all social media platforms uh, and they can do it for people. So they'll be doing it for, I'm not sure whether it's for all the clubs or just the A-League's profiles, which I probably should know because I reported on it, but don't tell Neil. I'm pretty sure he's not watching if he hasn't responded to Tom's comment, but um, <laughs> you know, so I think that like, it, it's, it's just like, there's not much to say. That's essentially what it is. You can read the article on it if you want to hear comments from everyone about it, but um, it's essentially just like, it, it's quite positive and it's good because it seems like Australian football is the first one who has jumped on board. And it, I think it's really good the way taking that kind of initiative, particularly considering um, the abuse overall in the league this season, you know, like there's been some abuse and stuff like that. Like there is in every league around the world. Uh, I don't know why I said that. That's kind of just like a random point, but it's good that we're, that it's good that there's been an active way to combat it. And that's, I think I explained it kind of poorly, but it's essentially, it stops any abusive comment gets hidden 
on uh, any social media platform, I think. Well, in a little bit of breaking news, that's the GoBubble community have actually partnered with the KitCast as well because uh, I was getting lots of hateful comments about how bad my hosting performance was. But <laughs> bang, just like that, they're all gone. <laughs> so thank you very much, uh, GoBubble community. Uh, moving on from the hateful comments and abuse, though, to something a bit more positive, something that doesn't sadden neither Jack nor Tom nor probably Peter nor myself, and Postacoglu. Looks like he's probably going to win the Scottish League title with Celtic. Tom. Yeah, it's great to see, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure if you guys watched the Old Firm last night, but it was it was great viewing, very good viewing. Tom Rogic, seeing him perform on the highest stage with Ange Postacoglu as a manager, like who would possibly have imagined that this was going to happen like 12 months ago? Like, like genuinely, Tom Rogic was like frozen out by um by Neil Lennon, even though Neil Lennon was the one who brought him to the club in the first place. But that's a different matter altogether. And, um, and, and beating Aaron Ramsey in the derby. Yeah, and beating Aaron Ramsey in the derby. It's it's absolute madness when you think about it. And like Rogic scoring as well, it was so good to see. One of the things that I would like to pick out from that game, though, apart from Ange. Um, I have intermittently watched some Celtic games this season. Um, but one player that I watched a lot in the J League. <laughs> I was going to um, say that, actually. One one player that I watched a lot in the J League was Dyson Maeda at Yokohama F Marinos. He was the top scorer in the J League last season, coming in off the left, but also playing uh, as a nine sometimes. Played off the left, sort of inside left with... um. Yakamukas as the as the nine, I believe. Um, he was so good. I know he didn't score, but his work rate is like incredible. For for a player, he's just the perfect player for Ange. Honestly, like he he works so hard off the ball. He'll press the first line every time, and he makes every defender earn every single pass that they try to play. And seriously, just. The whole team, how it's going at the moment, is phenomenal. And it looks like they're going to win the league. So who would have thought it? Um, it's fantastic. Ange Postacoglu, everyone loves him. There's not much I could say, more I could say about him. Uh, yeah. Well, at the moment, just having a look at the Scottish Premiership table as it uh, loads up here, Celtic and Rangers both on 32 games. I believe they've got six each left and Celtic are six points ahead. And when you're in a league, which two teams just dominate like they do, it's very hard to drop that amount of points in that amount of games. So it's looking very good for Ange Postacoglu and Celtic. But, uh, oh, Jack, your hands up there. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, obviously, there's not much more to say against Ange Postacoglu, but I just want to point out, I've pointed this out a lot, but just one more time, like, obviously, I saw that Alan Brazil thing on TalkSport today, and just the lack of known, there were, even the people who did know him were saying, you won't last off the basis that it's such a poorly run club. I think it says so much about him as a coach, him as a person, that he's been able to literally turn this club around, because that. The goal for them, it seemed at the start of the season, was come second and challenge Rangers. And now they're staring down the base of, like, defeating them relatively comfortably, like, you know, for the league title. And I think it's just so much about Postacoglu's recruitment ability. The fact that he's recruited, I think it was 12 players, and they all just are at one with his system. That is such a good coach if you can do that. And it's ridiculously promising to have someone that, like, intelligent and personable as 
like as an Australian coach. And it's just really exciting because you look at where it was at the start of the season. I remember listening to a TIFO football video of JJ Bull saying, well, Celtic are just screwed, not through their new coach's fault, through past, you know, like handling of situations. And he's just turned it all around within the season. It's ridiculous and awesome. <laughs> Peter. And just the fact that, like, remember when Pep Guardiola got rid of Joe Hart because he couldn't play with his feet? And Bogu <laughs> made him play with his feet. There's levels. Levels here. Absolute levels. He's a magician. Just on Celtic as well, it's worth placing this in the wider context of how down bad they were before Postacoglu came. Like, they wanted players, like, literally leaving the club. Like, Christopher Iyer and Odson Edward were the two fulcrums of their team. Like, two such important players. Literally carried them through last season when they were absolutely rubbish. They lose both of them. And they were, like, really in limbo. And then Ange brings a lot of players who, let's face it, not many people in Scotland would have heard of. And they're just dominating the league. And I think it really shows how much of an untapped market Asia is, particularly the J-League, because a lot of these Japanese players are performing so well in Europe at the moment. And I can just see it continuing to happen. Like, a lot of these players now... That now that European clubs are seeing how well they're performing in Europe, I think they'll be more willing to give a chance to some of these Japanese players that are performing well in the J-League. And that's got to be the model for the A-League in the future, honestly. Like, we've got to get players performing in these European leagues and raise the profile and standing of Australia overseas because that's how we get players overseas. That's how we get them getting a lot of minutes in these uh, better leagues. Uh, it's, it's incredible. Not only Ange's like winning trophies and all that, but he's changing the landscape of European football, like by possibly bringing in all these players from well, East Asia, Japan specifically for him. But Jack, you were going to say something there. Oh yeah, I was just going to say. Um, I guess like Tom spoke at the negatives of football, that Australian football particularly, there is a few positives in the fact of like you know Metcalf's going to St. Pauli next season, which could be a Bundesliga side. So. I mean, I don't think we can say we are starting to do this at all, but I think that it is quite promising that the Metcalf in particular, I think I'm missing a few, but Metcalf in particular has been developed with a few seasons within the A-League men as like a main part of Melbourne City's side and is now going to go to, if not a Bundesliga team, one of the top teams in Bundesliga too, and hopefully play quite a few games. You know, I think that's really positive. Can I just say on that as well, it's not exactly surprising that when one player goes to an overseas country and performs well, then there's a lot of other players who go to that country. Yeah. Look at Rogic with Celtic. How many other players have gone to Scotland after that? Devlin, Atkinson, uh, even like Matt Miller gone to Scotland. Look at uh, even Denmark, Mabil performed there. Zach Duncan then was there. And then Arzani went there to AGF. Amini performed well there and you see a lot more of these players going to Denmark. Um, If we can continue doing that and just have a bit more consistency with these players, then it'll be awesome. Um, Just before I go into a full rant, I will say as well, Japan with the Belgian league did that really well. Um, Tomiyasu was at St. Tweeden. Uh, Same with Wataru Endo. And if you look at um, Kawaru Matoma, the guy who destroyed us at Stadium Australia, um, he's in the Belgian league now, online from Brighton. 
they've done a really good job getting players to go to the Belgian league and using that as like a stepping stone to go to bigger leagues. I think that's a really, really important thing that Australia have got to do in the future. Peter, just quickly on that. Yeah, I just want to say I think uh, Denmark is a good example. I wrote a piece piece on Kick360 about Joe King talking to one of uh, Odense's scouts. And he he said that he, they basically look look uh, day league as an untapped uh, opportunity mm. for young players. So I guess like players like Amini and and Mabio and stuff, they they definitely left a mark there. Celtic play Rangers again on Sunday, the seventeenth of April, uh, at eleven p.m. Melbourne time, and that's in the Scottish Cup semi-final. So they'll, uh, if they win that, they'll play the winner of Hearts and Hibs. Uh, so yeah, another old firm coming up very, very soon. There was going to be uh, um, Celtic versus Rangers game in Australia as well, but doesn't <laughs> that's happening anymore because Rangers have pulled out. But speaking of those kind of friendlies, um, Man United are coming to Australia. They're going to play Crystal Palace and Melbourne Victory, and. Uh, there have been talks and rumours of Argentina possibly playing Brazil at the MCG as well. So, uh, Jack, th- this whole friendlies with overseas teams and countries, are they a good thing? Are they a bad thing? Or are they somewhere in between for Australian football? I think like a lot of things it's somewhere in between because when you look at like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm trying to convince my family to travel down to Melbourne to watch Melbourne Victory versus Manchester United because I am a Man United supporter. I think if you look at it from that, uh, particularly considering the A-League's attendances this season, it could be like, even if like out of them, like say like a thousand fans go, you know what, Melbourne Victory have played well against my favourite team, Manchester United. I'll go to a game somewhere next season. I'm not saying that will happen, but I think that could be looked on as a positive for the A-League's and it's a good chance to showcase... Um, you know, just like the quality, particularly with Melbourne Victor, I think that without wanting to go too into it, I feel like they could be a side um, that are good against Man United, if that makes any form of sense against a rebuilding Man United. Who knows? 5-0 win to Melbourne Victory is likely. But, um, you know, I think it could be a good chance to demonstrate like the quality of Australian football and kind of celebrate it in a way. But, yeah, I mean, like, it's then also the other argument is that it's just a sugar hit. And that particularly with the Brazil versus Argentina, how much good does that do for actual Australian football apart from just seeing what probably wouldn't even be some of the best players in the world because would they play, uh, you know, like, because they're all qualified and everything, you know. But, yeah, it's it's I, I don't have a firm opinion on it, to be completely honest, because that there's smarter people than me who that debate about it, like Tom. Well, so I've got a question for you and you can oh, expand as much as you want. Um, uh, Jack called it sugar hit there and talked about all the positives associated, but people, some people are quite angry about this stuff and I don't quite understand yeah. what harm it does. Yeah. Do you? Agreed. I don't understand how, like, see, it's very easy in Australian football to just spin things as bad for the purpose of saying or being annoyed for basically no reason. But, like, I, I don't really know how you could spin it as a bad thing. Like, you can be indifferent towards it, which I sort of am. I'm not buying a ticket, even though it's my team playing Melbourne Victory. That's just because I don't really care about a friendly being played at the MCG in front of 100,000 people from a team of Manchester United players in a meaningless game. Like, 
it's just I'm indifferent towards it. I acknowledge that after that game, there'll probably be 100,000 people that are reminded that the A-League actually exists, which is a good thing for better or for worse. Mm. Uh, mm. But ultimately, I don't really see how it can be a bad thing. I think it's great for the um, the footballing ecosystem. I hope that some of that money from that game funnels back into grassroots and back into the, um, the A-League because otherwise what's really the point? apart from it being sort of something that we get on the back pages and stuff like that. So I think the um, the Man United versus uh, victory game, that's a great idea. Where I'm a bit, as a footballing purist, I'm not sure I agree with the Brazil versus Argentina World Cup qualifier being played in Australia. And the reason for that is it's a competitive fixture between the two biggest teams in South America. I think their fans have to come at the forefront when this decision is being made. I and mean- I think what... Yeah, and I think what this reminds me of, uh, obviously it was in completely different circumstances, but when they played the Copa Libertadores final um, in Madrid, even though it was between Hivita Plates and um, Boca Juniors, like it, it's just kind of nonsensical to have such a, a big game, even though they're both qualified. It's still Copa Sudamerica. It's the two biggest teams in South America going up against each other like without consultation of their own fans and irrespective of that general point that as a matter of principle, I don't think these games should be overseas. I don't really get the appeal of that game in particular, given that as Jack said, their best players will probably be at home. Like I'm not willing to demean the quality of the average or the the footballing knowledge of the average person that attends one of these games. But Ultimately, do you, do we do we do we really think that that old mate down the street who buys a ticket for two hundred bucks to go watch Brazil on level four at the G is gonna know who Bruno Henrique and Gabriel Barbosa are when they're playing for Brazil and it's not Neymar, it's not Casimiro, it's not Thiago Silva, it's not Marquinhos? Do we really think that they'll know that? Do we really think that they'll know as good a player as he is? Do we really think that they'll know who Julian Alvarez is? In, in when he's playing instead of Messi, like they're good players, right? But they're not players that are household names in the Australian ecosystem of football. So I really just there's something as a matter of principle that really grinds my gears about that Brazil versus Argentina game, the victory versus United game, all for it, hundred percent, get it done, hundred thousand people in the G, back pages sorted. Um, everything about that will probably be a good sugar hit. Whether it's a lasting impact, uh, we'll see. I'm not convinced by it. I'm not convinced by these games in general, but I think I'm indifferent towards it. I think they could be a good thing, but all up, not a fan of the Brazil versus Argentina. And as well, um, I know it's probably not that important in the grand scheme of things, but for victory, this opportunity to play in front of an audience of probably millions around the globe who are watching on TV, like you can just whack a sponsor on the back of your shirt and they'll give you an absolute bucket load of money because so many people are going to see this. And very yeah, true. Like very true. Awesome shooter hit. It's really good. Um, in yeah. that sense. But uh, I think that just about wraps us up for the football chat. We've got one more question. It's from Pat Brochetto on Twitter. It's probably not the one that you're thinking it is going to be. Um, he gave us two. So we'll put this to Petar first. Petar, if you had to be stranded on a desert island with one member of the Kick360 team, who would it be? Oh, mm. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I'll get Tom. I think he's like, we think alike about football. 
<laughs> Jack? Harper, I'm going to take a loophole. I would pick everyone because everyone is <laughs> indispensable to the team. So oh. we could have a kick 360 party on a stranded island. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very tough question. And I know that I could talk football with all three of you for hours on end. But so oh, Neil Simons, you're on my desert island, my friend. <laughs> I think that's just about all we've got. One person, actually, just one last thing. One person that none of you mentioned that you'd take to a desert island is Lucas Ronaldo. He's not on the podcast today, but it is his birthday. So happy birthday to you, Lucas. Uh, the big, how old is he? He's 23, I think. Happy birthday to you, mate. Uh, sorry if you're not 23, but I hope you've had an enjoyable day. If you are tuning in, we're 85 minutes into the show, so thank you to the, all the people who have stuck around all the way through it. Petter, thank you to you for coming in all the way from Bulgaria and getting up two hours earlier than you had to just to get ready. <laughs> oh, thanks, guys. It's been a blast. Appreciate it, mate. In touch uh, sometime yeah. this week, Tom. Absolutely, that's Jack. What Neil said. No, that's what Neil said. Like the Wise Guy subscription. Oh no way! <laughs> sorry, Harper. Sorry. Full unfolding live on air. Um, Jack, thank you very much for coming on, mate. It's the first time uh, you've come on with me as host, and uh, I've enjoyed our time together. So, thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. Me too. Thank you very much, Harper. And Tom, uh, I see your face an awful lot, but I appreciate it every time I see you. So thank you for joining us and talking a bit of football for 85 minutes and 54 seconds. Cheers, boys. It was a pleasure. And thanks very much for tuning in, guys. Neil, we'll talk to you next week, and I will see you in a fortnight. Uh, until then, keep checking out Kick360 and have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, and week. 